1: Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack Sharpshooters with me, the baby-faced Napoleon nerd Zach White and the pin-up of Napoleonic-era historical commentary Marcus
0: Cribb. Marcus, how are you doing? I'm good. I was looking around the room to see who else was with us. Uh, very flattered. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing very well. Uh, looking forward to uh, today's episode. Very excited.
1: Yeah, well, we are going to be looking at something that, let's be honest, I've been whining about doing for a long time now. Uh, we're going to look at the life of the soldier. So rather than the kind of the, the topic based approaches that we've done in the past, like sieges, today, we want to look at the little people, the ordinary rank and file, those men who stood shoulder to shoulder in line and refused to budge, who just stood and fought and died in their positions and unpick their life, because it's important to emphasize right from the start, the battle was the exception. And so today we'll look at some of their experiences, the, the pretty horrendous world they uh,
0: were em, employed in and, and talk through some of those experiences. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, there's the old kind of saying, isn't it? War is 99% boredom and 1% uh, sheer terror. Uh, and I think that actually goes very well hand in hand with our world in the Peninsular War. Um, trying to do a bit of reading the other day on 1810, for example. And 1810 has one really big battle in it. And then lots and lots of marching rounds of uh, the peninsula, lots of small engagements, but one big standoff engagement. And this ties in quite well with our kind of our favourite series for um, Richard Sharp, Bernard Cornwell Sharp, because we do see things like uh, a bit of the training. We see um, in Sharp's regiment, we see how some of the men are drilled and drilled and drilled. Uh, we see the men trudging and on campaign for long periods of time. And we see a bit of some of these famous, you know, saying the scum of the earth when they sometimes break down and sometimes when they stand, you know, when they actually should be running away in sheer terror and they don't. And uh, that kind of insight into the ordinary soldier's life, which I think is really interesting. How did they sleep? How did they eat? Uh, What motivated them? Yeah. See, I'm staggered that you've taken your
1: research on to 1810, because you're writing a book, aren't you, on something that
0: happened in 1809? Yeah, but this isn't Porto, bingo. Um, though if it was and we were all drinking port, it would be quite a pleasant game. Yeah, I'm, I'm writing about 1809, which is quite um, an interesting year to write about because it is the grand return of... Um, Sir Arthur Wellesley and his quick smashing of the French out of Porto, which I think is just a fascinating battle and I won't get stuck into now. And then you end up with Talavera, Sharp's Eagle. Um, and then it kind of slightly, after all of the titles, slightly all retreats a little bit. And then 1810, I always kind of go, well, where do we take this? Because there's, you've got Bocasso, which is just a brilliant, fascinating battle, both tactically and strategically. And then they march back and you've got the lines of Torres Redress. And it's quite, it then takes quite a while. And then from 18, and like summer 1811 to 1814, it's non stop conflict, uh, it seems like. So, yeah, it's quite a mixed pace in the Peninsula War. Another reason I just keep finding it so fascinating the more I read on the Peninsula War, the more interesting it is. I don't think I will ever kind of seek that first for it.
1: At some point, we should probably do a kind of not idiot's guide to the Peninsula War but a kind of a run through of the whole thing. We could do two this idiots people.
0: guide to the peninsula war, law, couldn't we? Because, well, yeah, you know,
1: you and me, we, we qualify as idiots, I'm sure. Anyway, let's, let's actually talk about what we're meant to talk about today, which is, of course, their lives. And I want to take it back to something that you've mentioned already, which is Wellington's scum of the earth comment. Because the, the most obvious thing to start with here is, why did men en- enlist? Wellington, very famously, on a number of occasions, turned around and described his men as the scum of the earth. In the the first occasion, and this comment is often misunderstood, the first occasion was as a result of plundering amongst his men, following the Battle of Victoria, to the point where a couple of weeks later, the countryside was still ravaged by men who were absent from their their ranks, who were still busy plundering the locals. Um, Then he uses it again uh, at a dinner party, I believe. Um, he is, he uses it actually as a bit of a backhanded compliment. He describes his men as the scum of the earth enlisted for drink, um, but then goes on to say, you know, it's remarkable that we made such fine fellows of them. So it's very clear that he has a very dim view of the rank and file, Th- that's not surprising. Wellington was an aristocrat. I've often described him as a bit of a snob, and I stand by that opinion. You know, he is a product of his time and his class, if you will. The the comment, in my opinion, is quite kind of unhelpful because I spend a lot of time as a historian trying to correct the interpretation that people have because people go, oh, yeah, Wellington said they're scum. And so everybody thinks, you know, these are the pickings of the prisons and so on, which isn't actually the case.
0: Yeah, it's really frustrating when people go, oh, well, Wellington didn't like his men, he called them scum. And it's like end statement. And yes, you say it's so much more complicated than that uh, individual statement. Um, Yes, he did call them scum. uh, But context is everything. Most people do not realise the context. The strongest point for that is after the sacking of the French baggage at Victoria where the men went looting and it lost him. What would then be a total victory when they could then follow up. And this happened a few times, but Vittoria was the main one for the amount of loot that was taken. Um, And then also context, the wider context. Last time we talked about Suedad Rodrigo, Baderhof. I mean, Wellington, we said wept at Baderhof. If you haven't had an opportunity, I recommend people go back and listen to that because listening to our podcast you might think that actually we're just always here to talk about how amazing wellington is especially me um how fantastic his victories are and uh, you know what his armies are like especially zach but actually we have our own kind of balanced opinions of that and wellington had flaws but his army and his men especially do and uh, we talked a lot more about the kind of the darker side of mankind, not to get too uh, philosophical on it uh, last time. But, yeah, that's certainly something that's bear bearing context that we are talking about what had happened in some of the some of the darker side of the kind of human spirit uh, that encapsulates their service overseas as well. Which, you know, scum after watching what happened to Baderhof is frankly quite a polite statement to call them.
1: Yeah and I mean let's give people the full quote shall we because you know we're talking about context context matters that letter which goes out it's a private letter actually which is a significant point this isn't an official communication from Wellington it's something that has come down to us for the simple fact that his papers were preserved and so on the first I believe it's the first it's either the first or the third of July he writes to Bathurst he's apoplectic and this is classic Wellington the official dispatches they're very measured. They're very polite because Wellington knows full well that content from the dispatches is going to go straight into the national newspapers.
0: Yeah, and going to be this is going to be Trump tweeting. Everyone's going to see it.
1: And equally, never you know, going to
0: compare Wellington to Trump. That got really
1: weird very quickly. Yeah, no, let, let's, let's not go down that avenue because it doesn't work. But equally, you know, these statements can be read in Parliament. So Wellington knows that the official dispatch is not a point at which to vent his anger. The private letters completely different. And the reason that we know that it's a private letter is because of the way he starts. He starts, my dear Lord, as opposed to my Lord. That's the standard of communication at the time. But the quote itself, he says, it is quite impossible for me or any other man to command a British army under the existing system. We have in the service the scum of the earth as common soldiers. I did consider a Wellingtonian accent there, but decided against it. Our listeners couldn't stomach it. So that gives you a sense of of what he's talking about. He's talking about command and control and discipline. And his thinking is that, you know, it's impossible to command these men because they haven't got the basic standards of appropriate conduct amongst them. And then in time, he goes on to talk about things like, why did they enlist? Do they enlist because of drink? Because in his words, they've got bastard children because they're the pickings of the, the prisons. And of course the reality is far more subtle than any of that. Yes, there were people who were made drunk by the recruiting sergeants, but they didn't specifically enlist because they had an alcohol dependency where well, the army did feed that alcohol dependency if they had it, which we'll get onto in a minute, quite often. And this is where if folks are interested in reading anything on the reality of life as a soldier, I would strongly, strongly recommend a book by Edward Coss, All for the King Shilling, which is just a superb um Powerhouse on what it was like to be a soldier during this period, and, and the conditions that they faced, and the the psychology as well, uh, which we will unpick in a moment, of what it was like to serve during this period. Um, so he outlines that actually, in reality, if you look at the employment, the, the recruitment trends, what you find is that most of the time people enlist for economic reasons, and that's not that surprising. That's always been the case with armies when times are hard. And where there aren't jobs out there, the army's offering you a meal or two a day. Later on, they offer three meals a day. And crucially, they offer you a, a steady wage. And yes, there are the associated risks. But if you need money, actually signing up to fight is, is quite a good way of doing things.
0: So uh, two episodes ago, I did a little kind of capture of what a guerrilla was like. And I'm going to try to do the same now for what a recruit was like, um, what Tommy Atkins was like in about 1809. So taking off a few different sources here, uh, he was likely to be called John um, from Andrew Dorman said the ones that were flogged in the late 1700s, they're mostly called John. Uh, He's probably going to be between five foot five and five foot ten inches tall, 86% of them uh, were. We know that from records from their enlistments. Uh, They're probably going to be aged roughly between 19 and 30 years old. So a little bit older than it might seem. Uh, now, do bear in mind that actually records were quite bad for individuals and people did lie about their age. Um, so we take that with a pinch of salt. But there is a, a higher end of that. The majority of them are agricultural labourers, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're a skilled farmhand. In fact, I think it's Edward Cost writes that that very much means they're going to probably be seasonal. They're going to be going from job to job, from exactly. estate to estate. They're not really going to have those fixed roots that we expect. Um, and it's going to be quite lowly paid um, work and after that they're often made up of weavers so again uh, actually quite a skilled job and very badly paid and after that they're actually mostly um, cobblers and, and shoemakers uh, is the third trade that fills up and there's the famous account of that is the, the real rifleman Harris whose uh, father uh, was a shoemaker and himself a shepherd so he kind of falls into that category and that's roughly who they are so they're, they're pretty standard. You know, they're mostly from semi-rural areas, not average height, a bit older, and they're joining for mostly economic reasons. Reasons that they join as well is there's a high majority of them, or a high percentage of them at least, um, have previously served in the militia. Now, militias are home defence, not quite like the territorial army, uh, as it was compulsory. So for short periods, you could um, basically be conscripted. And it was the only form of conscription that Britain had in that era. But the difference is you didn't get your big recruitment bonus that you did within the regular army. So what the regular army did was go into these areas and just to put it into context, militia very badly trained. You joined your local militia and then they actually post you into like, the next county. So you're not having to like, basically police your friends because that wouldn't work. Uh, It's very mundane. It's very boring. It's badly paid. It's not a lot of excitement. The regular army are allowed to put their recruiting parties, um, sergeants, out there and uh, underseen by an officer out into the militia. And they will promise them their recruitment bounty by the end of the war, by just after Waterloo. If you enlisted for life, uh, recruitment bounty was up to 10 guineas. Now, a man wouldn't earn a guinea in a year. It's a huge amount of money. You can actually... Uh, enlist for the duration of the war or seven years and then earn seven guineas, which is a pretty good prospect because you could be demobilized in two years and take that or it might, you know, go on for a very long time. But they actually changed the law that you're no longer enlisting for life, which was a big development uh, from how it had previously been during the 1700s as well. Yeah, what's interesting there, the two
1: things. Firstly, the bounty. Now, the bounty is great because, yeah, you get all this money, kind of put in your pocket but as soon as you start to get that money they make deductions you know there's deductions for for cool. and, yeah for bed and board on your way to the recruitment depot and then it's customary to buy you know your recruiting sergeant many drinks uh, so what you eventually find is that this recruiting bounty just dwindles away to very very little
0: however got, if you take your bounty little. and bunk off before you arrive at the depot you can keep the whole thing yeah and that's called do...
1: desertion mate that will end up yeah. with you being shot
0: but quite a few people did it and did they it. were able to do a few i was reading an account of a young son of a gentleman so kind of very minor aristoc- uh, aristocracy and he did it a few a few times they eventually caught him flogged him and then kept him, and actually, he was forced to serve, and he was forced to serve on the Isle of Wight, so he was less likely to get back to the mainland. Uh, they didn't flog, they didn't shoot him because they wanted him.
1: Interesting. See, so the other thing about the bounties is that once you're enlisted for a certain term, it kind of ends up being a little bit difficult to get out, um, and there are a few examples of this. So, whilst they're out in the peninsula, there's a change, uh, just a, a summary. Uh, law that's passed by parliament which basically says look your time might be up but you are staying out there until this war is over doesn't matter um, about the fact that your terms of enlistment are up you are expected to stay with your units and if you leave your unit you are a deserter and you will be punished accordingly equally the um there's a very famous account i believe it's harris isn't it who's out in new orleans and he spends the night before the battle of new orleans um, Marcus is shaking his head, saying, no, you've got the wrong person there. Somebody, and this is going to bug me for the rest of this recording, a soldier. Oh, it's Cooper. That's who it is. It's Cooper. Who's Yeah. Cooper? Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: Seven Harris was too ill away. from uh, the lowlands and got malaria. Of course so he, he was. was
1: yeah, he got falcon fever, didn't he? So Cooper spends the night before the Battle of New Orleans, basically trying to find the commander of the army, General Packenham, to say, look, my time's up. I don't particularly want to fight this battle tomorrow can you just sign some discharge papers and let me go please because i don't fancy being shot he was eventually he was all right in the end but it just goes to show that once you're in you're in it's quite hard to get away if the army still has need of you
0: that's oh it's quite funny yeah i've forgotten that bit about cooper it reminds me of uh, a great war film platoon where everyone's counting down how many days they've got left in the field uh and um they want to just go home and they literally go i get to go home tomorrow but tomorrow the, the enemy are attacking yeah what good is that to me yeah um even the term bounty is kind of making me laugh because in the in the reserves and the territorial army we get an annual bounty uh as a payment and i hadn't even though i'd read it a thousand times I hadn't joined up the dots so that's where bounty comes from it's also the only time that if you read these old accounts soldiers were allowed to go home for a, like a long period of time to see their family they didn't get annual holiday annual leave like we do and uh, so they were given a, a piece of paper to prove that they hadn't deserted and they were told to go home and that term was called furlough which is now a word that we use all the time yep. but until last year it would only been used within the military i just thought that was quite interesting
1: yeah it, it certainly is okay so we've got these men they have enlisted you're a re-enactor, Marcus. You understand the handling of a musket better than me. You understand drill better than me. So talk us through what's the training actually like?
0: So the training is quite interesting. It happens two stage, both at depot and at regiment. There's not a lot written about the length of the training. So what would often happen is a recruiting party would go out. They'd form up these men and then bring them back to a central depot. The central depot typically is going to be in the county that the regiment is attached to. So it would be in the county of Dorset if they were the Dorsetshire regiment, for example. And it would be probably in Dorchester or actually Weymouth barracks were huge at the time. Anyway, I digress. Um, and they would be there for um, probably a period of months. Uh, they, the first stage is literally issuing all of their kits. Um, they will probably be giving over, signing away their civilian clothes into stores, and they will be issued four shirts, two tunics, and so on and so on. And they just, they are becoming military. And it is a period of drill. And that's something that actually in Sharp's regiment, when they go back to Chelmsford and Tilbury Fort, they get right. It is drill and drill and drill. Uh, for cavalry soldiers, it's the saber drill, uh, the famous six cuts. And they're actually, I was reading really interesting account in Andrew Bamford's Gallantry and Discipline about the willowiness of them. They're um, often referred to, they're, they're actually almost like stretching their arms because they're doing so much saber drill for the cavalry. For the, for the foot soldiers, the, I always say that if you can do drill, if you are like, not even just a reenactor, if you are a cadet, if you are a scout leader, you know, if you can march and stop, then you can effectively fire a musket. It's not like firing a modern weapon where you think about it. It is very, very, um, disciplined. You do it in time with everyone else and you go through these movements and what you're doing there is you're not, you're doing a dual stage of institutionalization of the, of the man into the military and you are forming them into machines. And that has been really, really effective. So into the institutionalisation, you have things like they will then go and do tasks for one of the sergeants or one of the officer's wives. They will, you know, we see it the Sharps Regiment, they, they dig ditches. They will do that. Um, if, this, if the sergeant's wife tells them that she needs her house painting, they will be tasked to go and do with that. So it is cheap labour in a way. And it just kind of makes them part of the, uh, the institution. But then the really important thing is that they are just told you go through these movements. This is how you turn. This is how you face. This is how, how you're going to load your musket. This is what you're going to do when your musket goes wrong. And they are doing it for hours and hours and hours each day. Between that, they might do things like saw drills. they are certainly, if they're a foot soldier, do things like bayonet drills. But where the foot drill comes in is it will comes in on the battlefield. So when when they're not, you know, green jackets, when they're not thinking, an entire regiment will turn and face like one unit in theory 500 men wide too deep are moving as a big long red line and they're being shot at during most of that time because they're going to be very very close to the enemy and they're certainly going to be well within cannon shot they will be taking casualties left and right of them if not directly then in the next company it is going to be scary as hell every single natural bone in your body is to lie down as that literally wasn't a drill then You're going to just want to step away and run. And that is just natural. That is human. So it's breaking the human instinct, self-preservation that you will stand and it's better to stand and die and break that human instinct to run than anything else. And just take that punishment. Wellington himself, who said hard pounding this gentleman, and that is what they're taking. They are making machines out of the men that would take the order to move and stand and then walk towards the danger. And this, it takes a very long time. Once they finish doing it at depot, they will actually join their companies or um, troops if they're in the cavalry. And uh, the training will continue under NCOs. And uh, that's really important that this is being taught by normally experienced men. We've just had the Revolutionary Wars, so they are veterans of overseas campaigns. They possibly fought in places that these men have never even heard of. They fought in places of South Italy, Sicily, Egypt. This is a world away when you're getting on board a basically a, a boat with a sail. that um, You've never probably left your county apart from for go to market day or to go and get, find employment. Um, So it's going to be a bit of an adventure, but that and even in itself is going to be quite scary. And so it's this bonding experience. And under all of that, they have the military discipline. They have getting up early in the morning and they have infractions that are punishable by corporal punishment.
1: Yeah, there's so many ways that we could take that, isn't there? Because we could talk about experience of battle. We could talk about punishment itself. But we'll we'll get to those in, in a bit but I like what you're saying about the whole kind of making these men into machines, because as you say, it's an automaton process, isn't it? It's about suppressing that personalized survival instinct and making the, the, the weapon in effect, not so much the individual holding the musket, the weapon is the, the phalanx, the battalion, the line and its ability to move as one and fire as one. And rather than, the, sort of the modern day notion of conflict which is very much about the individual and move fire manoeuvre etc et, et that that's not how this works yes okay yeah. to an extent it works for the skirmishers it's, it works more for the the rifles but they are the exception rather than the rule and 90 percent of that regiment is made up of the the non-skirmishers the the men who stand in line shoulder to shoulder
0: yeah, you still have it today. Um, so you have drills that um, you call it RTR drills that when you're shot at, you basically return fire, you take cover, you turn it to appropriate fire. So basically you fire some rounds and you get down your knees and then you fire more rounds effectively. But it's that muscle memory. And I think it was listening to one of those old, you know, do you remember when you used to have DVDs um, oh, yes. and uh, used to have making of features? I think it was one of those. band. Of, no, it wasn't. It was Black Hawk Down and uh, they were trying to teach the axes to basically we're going to send you down an alleyway we're going to shoot at you and they all just went oh jesus fuck oh shit and they go yeah that, that will work for some of you however the rest of you you would actually be training you'll be professional soldiers which means you get shot at your response will be to shoot back and you'll be able to do this and you'll do that and you'll you'll do whatever's in the u.s army manual but most of us, you know, myself included, if someone's shooting you for real, it'd just be so fucking scary that you're going to want to be going, ah, Jesus, I know, I, I And you're going, no, actually, that's not going to work. If you've got a thousand men doing that, you've not got a regiment going into battle. It is just going to fail. And so they're breaking that down as such a fundamental thing that actually it's just incomprehensible. And you said about Rifleman Harris, there's a really interesting account. I think it's the Battle of Romero. And the man in front of him turns around to run. And he slams him back into position. And after that, the man has just got a black mark against his name. Yeah. Everybody's just calling him a coward. And none of them would ever think of running.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And this takes us quite neatly into the experience of battle and particularly the social expectations, which is something that we need to, to drill into. And so this next bit's going to kind of sound a little bit theoretical, but it's worth bearing in mind that this, this theory is put together based on detailed study of people coming off of the front lines Um, initially it was put together um during the 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 normandy campaign so Mm. um this is known as primary group theory and a number of researchers used the opportunity in normandy to interview people coming off the front line to work out what it was that was keeping them fighting when when they were called upon to fight and off the back of that this kind of idea has been manipulated and reworked to work out what is it that motivates uh, a soldier and it's effectively you've got three main categories normative coercive and remunerative now coercive does what it says on the tin coercion basically the, the threat of punishment the remunerative again does what it says on the tin that's the rewards whether that's plunder in some circumstances whether that's pay whether it's medals whatever it might be you're getting some kind of affirmation But the normative is different because affirmation exists within the normative, but it's a very different way of doing things. And it's basically the expectation of your comrades. You are not a lone individual within a unit. That's the whole point of how an army is meant to work. You are part of a collective. And during this period, if you fail, well, in fact, during any period of history, if you fail to conform to the norms, the expectations of your social group, i.e. your platoon, you're going to be pushed aside. Now, during this period, that's actually really dangerous. Not only is it dangerous in the sense that, as you say, if you turn and run, you've got a black mark against your name. But equally, Marcus is doing a kind of knife and fork uh, mime at me uh, as we're recording this. If during this period, food is scarce in the army. Yes, they're meant to be given food, daily rations that they actually pay for that food and quite often don't get it. But because food is scarce, what these men are doing quite a lot of the time is plundering and sharing what they find in order to survive and so if you're ostracized from that primary group from your platoon from your mess your odds of survival actually drop substantially because you're not getting a cut of the mess pot. Um, so yeah there are there are a few reasons why you would kind of stand your ground and and fight but it's also interesting that there's a there's a counter to what you were saying about the guy who turns around and it's almost sort of slapped back into place mm. because I remember another um, memoir that I read where the the person writing it expressed their fear in in the context of the writing but they also talked about what it was that made them quell that fear and it was quite simply a glance to the left and a glance to the right looking at the people who are literally standing shoulder to shoulder with you and seeing that grim determination in their face and knowing actually you know what He's going to fight. He's going to fight. I need to do my bit as well because I'm relying on them and they're relying on me. And that is what holds this unit, this army together
0: yeah i mean for my my limited military experience has, and i will you know the limited part on there there is nothing more reassuring than having a fantastic leader or a fantastic um like oppo next to you i've been on exercise with the guy and he's outstanding like a super soldier and you just feel so reassured and then you've got some bumbling leader actually normally a staff sergeant but it could be a, a slightly clueless officer and you suddenly start to feel like oh god our lives are meant to be in his hand if we ever go to war brilliant and, but that kind of comes under the, the umbrella of the British military regimental system. And not to get too theoretical on this, but that is so embedded in the military then and today. Today, how do you know somebody who was in the parachute regiment? Don't worry, he'll tell you first. But in all seriousness, then um, it would happen. And there were cases where they would be turning around and going, you are the first battalion in the regiment fight hard don't make them mistake you for the second battalion of the regiment and that would motivate them really good account um i was talking to zach about the battle of bucaso recently about the irish that fought there and at the end of it beresford wellington's basically one of his right hand men comes over and goes i'm really proud of you boys wow the 88th colonel you're better than i was expecting and it's the collective agreement the loyalty to the colors literally then uh, now a bit more figuratively um was second to none you know people would fight and die for a rag on a pole well don't you think they would richard is is a line and they would they would fight and die for that um for that symbology of their regiment and they are knitted together yeah you might think your mate in the squad is an absolute loser and you're allowed to call him that but if the guy from the other regiment does it tribalism that's my tribe And our tribe's always going to be stronger than the other tribe. And what unites us together? Well, the tribe on the other hill's our enemy. So otherwise, we're all going to fight each other because we're all into these little semi-tribes. But the guys on the other hill, probably dressed in blue, well, they're a tribe, and we're going to go and get them at the end of the day, and we'll put all our differences uh, together. The psychology of it is very primitive, but it is effective and it does work.
1: The psychology needs to be primitive, though, doesn't it? Because On two levels. Firstly, it's you've got to suppress that fight and flight, or you suppress the flight element of mm. that fight or flight reflex. But also consider what battle is like during this period. This is the age of gunpowder, of black powder. You pull a trigger, and out comes a whole load of smoke, a whole load of noise, and the balls kicked off in the direction of wherever you pointed the gun. But because you've got 500 men firing as one, you kind of create a haze. And so the fog, you have a literal fog of war that descends on battlefields because of the gunpowder smoke and so therefore you can't actually see what's coming at you all you can see is a few yards to your left and your right and everything else is is shrouded in smoke and so you need that reliance on the people around you yeah. because actually you don't have a wide scope to be able to kind of look around and assess what's happening in the wider battlefield you don't have that that broader perspective because it, it's gone. It, it's in the gun smoke,
0: And you have to then trust the whole system. You have to trust that your sergeant is going to be motivating everybody in your company, everyone in your platoon, to do the right thing. He's going to have trained you all equally. He's going to be standing to the side, to the front, either to the back of you, physically pushing you into line. And that is keeping everyone there. And that social structure, I'm always reminded of that kind of, I'm middle class, I know my place, and kind of joke Um that they did with the, some of the pythons, but you're going to have then trusting in your junior officers. Some of these men are going to be very young, younger than you, that they are going to be leading you as a company, and that underneath them, where they're getting their orders, they're senior officers, men who you know you wouldn't dare talk to the colonel, even though you'd be your tent might be fi- figuratively almost next to each other, and you're sharing these um, the horrors of war and the you know the deprivations of campaign. You wouldn't look him in the eye unless he talks to you. But right then, at that moment when it counts, you're going to trust that he's going to do the best for you and your men and your regiments, and that everything that hinges upon those officers making those decisions. And it's got to be trust. If he makes the wrong decision, you're all dead. And then you're trusting them, underneath them, the commanders, people like Wellington, to make the big overall decisions. And you're trusting that they're the best in the world. And actually, our regiment's going to be the best and it's part of the best British army. And we're going to get through this and we're going to win. And it's, it's trust. It's what it comes down to. You say you look left, you look right. You might not like them. You might have fallen out over a beer, over a girl, over a game of cards. But right at that moment in time, everything depends upon that. They are going to load and fire their musket. They're not going to run away. And when it gets to it, you'll be bayonetting people at the same time. It is not glorious, but it is uh, bonding.
1: Yeah. As you say, it's all about trust. You can't coerce someone 100% of the time. And you certainly can't coerce someone into risking their life. So it has to be about far more than quite simply the stick. There has to be the carrot. And that carrot, as we say, has, has many forms. One of those forms, though, that that should exist but certainly doesn't, is rations. So in terms of what they're they're meant to get, so you're supposed to get a very, very small amount of meat every day, some bread some alcohol, yes, alcohol was part of the ration. You were given booze, uh, sometimes watered down, Um, but you've got to bear in mind that this is an age well before water sanitation. And so you didn't actually want your men drinking the water because you couldn't trust the quality of the water. So booze was actually, it was more likely to be sterile. Um, And that gets deducted from the pay. And what you then see is that the, the army on campaign quite often doesn't get what it's meant to get in rations and there are even instances where Wellington looks at the poor quality of the supplies his men are getting and he explicitly orders a reduction in the deductions from pay i.e they're deducted less because the meat is of such poor quality that he goes you know this is not worth the the amount that we're, we're taking from them But there's another problem. They only stopped that system about five years ago.
0: So that's quite fair, actually.
1: (laughs) There is another problem, though. And this is where we come back to Ed Coss's brilliant book, because Ed went through the rations and worked out their nutritional value. And then he went and worked out the amount of energy that a soldier was expending day by day. And what he found was a gap. And that gap effectively means that the rations they were rec- they were meant to be receiving, and they were, bear in mind they weren't getting those rations, but the rations they were meant to be receiving were nutritionally inadequate for the task that they were expected to fulfil. So if you got everything you were supposed to, you were still going to starve yourself to death by, by doing the work that was expected of you. But when you're not even getting those rations, that's how you can start to understand why the British Army has such a widespread issue with plunder, because a lot of the time, they're plundering for subsistence. They're stealing from people, so that they don't starve to death themselves and that's where the the issues start to come in because as soon as you go off to plunder in order to actually be able to eat tonight and therefore be able to to be able to march the next day and follow your orders then you start to get that very grey dividing line about at what point does plunder for survival stop and at what point are you lining your own pockets with the shiny things that you find along the way
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think back to um, some of the stuff with the rations and the feeding. I think roughly uh, an average kind of UK male needs between two and, and two and a half thousand calories intake a day. Whereas a soldier on campaign needs about three and a half thousand calories, which is about the same as an Olympic athlete. And we think of them eating Mars bars, like tens of Mars bars for breakfast. That's what we're now expecting people to have. And these days we've got things like energy drinks and chocolate bars. Then you have got bread, cheese, meat, dried peas, that kind of thing. So actually getting the calorie intake you need without going purely onto like red meat is really, really difficult for that number of men uh, to get together. So however hungry they are, they, even if they're eating lots of bread, they are probably not getting the substance that they need, like you say.
1: I've just got Richard Holmes's brilliant book, Redcoats, open in front of me, which I've been uh, looking at in preparation for this. Yes, we do, really do prepare for these podcasts. We don't just do it off the, the cuff. Um, we, we at least try and pretend that we know what we're talking about. And so he says... Uh, and he's done a huge amount of research into this, so he knows his stuff, that men during this period were entitled to one pound of bread, one pound of beef, one ounce of butter or cheese, one pound of peas, and one ounce of rice. Now, I don't know about you, but to me that sounds like one meal, and that's your ration for a day. And so you start to understand why the communal society ends up being so crucial because you take all of those individual rations and you put them together into the mess pot and you create some kind of stew or a broth and then you chuck in a few potatoes that you dug up from a field when the officers weren't looking and that's how you start to bring together enough to be able to to keep going day by day
0: yeah it's it's very hard to kind of have a go at men who are stealing make you know what maybe worse to survive and this is where it's the gray area however in the men's defense in wellington's defense especially the system existed that they were supposed to be issued those rations and they were not supposed to be living off the land so that is supplementary um, to their rations that is very different and markedly different to the french system napoleon system where they are meant to source it locally Now, this is incredibly difficult when you've got an army. The French armies were unworldly big, you know, in in Spain, 100,000 men going into Russia, a quarter of a million men going through small towns. You're thinking, how much food is a town going to going to hold and just stripping it dry? And even if they didn't murder people because they didn't want to give away their food, they're basically going to starve for the winter. And this brings us back on to things we've talked about, like the outbreak of the wars, the cause of the war, the guerrillas, and what, what motivates them to fight. And that, again, I think justifies some of the resistance, the, at a localised level, vengeance against the, the French. The British are still stealing, uh, but it's hopefully mostly for necessity. But if you're going to put 100,000 men together, roughly, who've been institutionalised, who come from... You know, parts of society where they've had to, like, live hand-to-mouth anyway, and there's the opportunity for plunder. Unfortunately, some of them will take that opportunity as well.
1: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's important to emphasise that yes, these are very different systems. The British try and pay for everything, even when uh, men plunder. There is a facility for the um, the civilians to go and complain to an officer and go, look, this guy's stolen a chicken from me. I either want the chicken back or I want compensation for it. Now, in practice, what you actually see is that the discipline system can't handle that. Uh, but that's that's another thing entirely, and certain somebody is writing a book as we speak about all of that naming no names back to to the the life of of soldiers though in terms of what they're doing day to day on campaign effectively what they're doing is either sitting in a a camp if they're in winter quarters going out on drill or they're marching or counter-marching you know these are very long very grueling marches in horrendous conditions so if you think about the retreat to corinia for example which is an exception in that it happens in, in January, in, in the depths of winter across, across the uh, Galathean mountains, so horrendous conditions. Um, you know, they're, they're marching in, in literally freezing conditions, in blizzards, um, but then Spain is a country of extremes, so in the summer you've got blistering heat, you've got the army deliberately not marching during the middle of the day because of the men will drop dead of, of heat stroke, potentially. And even when they are, you know, these are these are not good quality roads. These are dusty roads. And there are accounts of men's lips swelling and bursting because of the heat.
0: Yeah, I think I read an account where men were sucking on musket balls or pebbles, try to get saliva into their mouths. Um, and the other thing that isn't taken into kind of history books, because it's not exciting, is the monotony of... Being on campaign is interspersed with jobs like picket duty. So that's sentry duty to you and I. Now, this is not easy to write about because often not a lot would happen. This could often be uh, you have forward patrols of the cavalry going out and they'd be doing uh, a picket or something called a vedette near things like bridges and roads and places like that. But you're going to have wide screens of these pickets going out um, from the line regiments, from the normal soldiers as well. And it's just going to be on a rotational basis. Um, To put it in some context, uh, basically picket duty, um, central duty is incredibly dull, It's the most unpopular thing that anyone can really do because it, by necessity, means a lack of sleep. During the middle of the day, it's just boring because you're staring into empty fields or empty woods, hopefully. Uh, At nighttime, it's depriving you of sleep. You're probably going to be doing it for two to four hours at a time in very small groups, normally in pairs, um, but you're discouraged from talking in case you give your position away, so you're just staying there, whilst everyone else is, is snoring. Or if you are asleep, you're expecting to be woken up and told you now on sentry duty, which is just the most unpopular thing you can do to somebody at two in the morning. And that's interspersed with the fear that what's that broken twig, that rustling. Is that a deer? Or is that a French patrol? Well, I think it's probably just a deer, but do I fire my weapon to warn everyone and wake everybody up, but it could just be a deer and that's just going to piss everyone off. Or if it is a French patrol, he could kill me before I raise the alarm. And now this is my only opportunity. And you're then giving these men who, again, are part of the machines n- next to no education, probably none. That m- snap moment of decision. And you're kind of putting them on knife edge and that fear, just a quick noise in the middle of the night. What was that? What was it? Are they speaking French? And it just gets the hairs in the back of your neck. Just that quick moment. And they've got to make that decision. And that's that's sentry duty for you.
1: Yeah, activates that kind of almost primeval instinct, doesn't it? And w- although, you know, in those kind of situations, yes, your senses are heightened, um, at the same time, you're, you're having to make really crucial life and death mm-hmm. decisions. But the other side to this, of course, is that plenty weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing on century duty. And there are some great accounts that I've come across of men who were drunk, or they're busy actually having conversations with their counterparts
0: on the French side. Um, Yeah, that happens,
1: especially when there was like a river.
0: They would go down, I've seen a few, and they would swap items like tobacco and play me, maybe play cards with the French. And it reminds me of what we now think is mostly the fictionalised Christmas truce um, of the First World War. But it certainly happens, especially when we're talking about these ranges. I'm pretty sure it happened the night before Talavera. Uh, the, the the armies went forwards and had a bit of a chin wag, and then the next day we're murdering each other. Well, Tel is an interesting one, because you've
1: got the night attack, haven't you? Mm. Which is and that's every, it.
0: You, the the sentry yeah. is on one of the hills under Hills, um, literally, this is not confusing, Hills Brigade, General Roland Hill, um, is on a hill and uh, they think they're back well within the line, so don't need to put out pickets, don't need to put out sentries. In fact, actually, they're on the forward slope, not the reverse slope, so they should have sentries out. They don't, and they get attacked, and there's mass, mass confusion. Uh, And it just goes to prove, you know, oh, well, we won't put sentries out. Everyone gets their head down because we're tired of even marching all day. Just so happens to be the one time that the French actually attack own strength at night. Yeah, uh, that definitely happens. We should probably start talking briefly
1: about discipline as well, shouldn't we? Because that was a a crucial factor. I think we probably
0: should. I think you should probably start talking about discipline and uh, see where we go. So,
1: I mean, I've talked about this before with Alex, as everybody knows, um, the the episode is out in the archive somewhere. Um, I'm sure it's on YouTube. Um, and if you're not subscribing on YouTube, then please do go and hit that subscribe button because it helps because History Hack gets advertising revenue from YouTube. So, you know, you're, you're helping us to keep going. It's a little publicity thing aside. So discipline, I mean, there's no getting away from the fact that the British Army is an army that flogs. There is um, one of the, a, a really good book actually, for the most part, written by Roger Norman Buckley on the British Army in the West Indies. And he talks about discipline but much though I love his work and I love his methods, boy is he off the mark because he describes the, the the army system as terror and torture as public spectacle and what he's done is he's looked at what happens at the very top of the discipline structure, he's looked at the fact that the army flogs a lot, I've looked at about nine and a half thousand cases, added up the number of lashes that the courts issue and it comes to about two million or as near as makes no difference, so yes the army flog a great deal. It's, so it's, it's, right. it's torture, yes, in one sense. Is it terrorizing? Well, these floggings take place publicly. The regiment is paraded in a hollow square. The, the guilty individual is brought forward. He's tied to a tripod and the drummer boys of the regiment flog him in full view of the rest of the regiment. So it is public and the idea is that it's meant to act as a deterrent. So you can see why he comes up with this Uh, with this judgment. The reality, as I explained to Alex, is that there is much, much more going on behind the scenes. Yes, you have these individuals for whom examples are made, but there's a whole vast kind of criminal underbelly that's going on out of sight. Well, it's not actually out of sight, but it's, it's deliberately ignored. That means that these individuals are in effect the unlucky ones. And there is far more pragmatism in the system. There's far more discretion in the system. You have officers turning a blind eye to their men's plundering because they know the men are starving. You've got officers lining their pockets themselves. Sometimes they're as bad as the men. You know, there's this system out there of being on the make. You see some nice little souvenir and go, yeah, that's going to look great in my country house back home. And so you see the officers sometimes taking these things and, and keeping hold of them. And there's this is whole culture of it going on out there. Um, So it's it's difficult to to describe this system as terror and torture. The other thing you've got to bear in mind is that the army or the courts, I should say, issue two million lashes. Not all of those are inflicted. You have this system whereby men will take as much as the the officers believe the guy can take. So a, a doctor, a medical officer is in attendance at the flogging and they have the ability to step in and say no 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 you can't flog this guy anymore he's had enough now sometimes they don't step in but other times they do or the officers themselves allow themselves to step in and go right you've had a hundred lashes which you know let's not be around the bushes is still horrendous but where you've got thousand or twelve hundred lash sentences being handed out to only take a hundred is serious generosity they say look you've had a hundred lashes And one of the the best um, anecdotes that I've ever come across is of an officer who every 25 lashes turns around to the men, the remainder of the regiment, and says, look, if you will vouch for this guy's behavior, I will stop this flogging. And it takes something like 100 or 150 lashes before somebody turns around and goes, all right, sir, I'll vouch for him, which shows you something about the honor that exists within these regiments and those kind of societal expectations that they know that if you overstep the mark and you're not one of those ones who generally toes the line, if you're a bit of a toe rag, you deserve what you get. And it shows that they have the faith in the system that actually the officers will uh, punish to an appropriate extent. So it's far from being kind of arbitrary in nature.
0: Uh, just toe rag, horrible naval term, uh, the men weren't that bad, they were not say this, Jesus sake. Um, <laughs> 1200 lashes that has got to be a death sentence though isn't it i mean even if with medical people present i mean it, you're you're going beyond taking the skin there's not a lot of flesh on your back uh, 1200 lashes is that the equivalent to a death sentence uh
1: yes and no it's not the legal maximum the legal maximum is 1500 so you can, well, you can that's sent- right then. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> so you can sentence somebody to 1500 lashes now there is a Pushed from the the king himself who reads um in i believe it's 1807 he has to confirm some of the sentences particularly if the trials take place in the british isles so they're sent to him for confirmation and he looks at the the sentence of 1500 lashes and he if she, he offers his opinion that 1000 lashes in his royal opinion is more than enough to ever be sentencing somebody to now that's not legally binding Um, So there are instances after that where people are sentenced to 1500 lashes, but they then don't receive them. Because, as I mentioned, there are ways where officers can step in. And one of the things they can do is replace that punishment for something else. So transportation is um, sometimes an option. Equally, in certain um, circumstances, you can um, order somebody to enlist for life. And then they're sent to a penal regiment, usually somewhere in the West Indies. Now, that is a death sentence because they're known as the fever islands because of malaria and and the the diseases out there that there isn't Western immunity to. So you've got kind of a a complex system. Something else that's really interesting about um, the the, you mentioned the Navy and kind of the comparisons between the two. See, the Navy has a much lower lash limit, um, but... People sometimes say, ah, oh, but, you know, this kind of counts itself out because in the Navy, you might be sentenced to two dozen lashes, but they're inflicted by the bosun, you know, one of the really mm. burly, sturdy individuals within the ship who's, who's you know, built like a, a, a tank, effectively. Um, and, you know, in the army, there are drummer boys. And so, you know, they're, they're little boys pre-puberty, you know, it's not going to hurt quite so much. The interesting thing, and this comes um, back to Eamon O'Keefe's research who's looking at military music in actual fact they were teenagers um so really not not the case
0: yeah uh, i'm glad you picked up on that that's something i was uh, keen to flag is actually yes sometimes they would join as drummer boys but they actually might stay with the band for a long time or they might transfer into the band and something that's coming out and i really think more needs to be made of this is there were certain regiments who thought it was fashionable to hire men from what were then known as, you know, the Windward Isles, the Caribbean. And it was it was a, a, kind of a fashionable thing. I think it goes, it's, you know, as recent as the Second World War that we kind of thought the American black GIs had a you know good ear for music and rhythm and jazz. And it's a wide stereotype, but it did mean that some of the regiments actually were hiring um, entire bands, so like 20 um, black men. Some of them born in the UK, some of them born overseas. Um, and just something to pick up is you, I do see these horrific comments online and I, and I jump on them and spend far too long on them, where you go, oh, well, the BBC did a casting in Vanity Fair and one of the soldiers in it was black and that never would have happened. You go, aha, well, actually, you got 20 men, they were black. And after some um, time as the band, they would actually just naturally transfer into the regiment there were whole regiments of the colonial marines who were raised out in the caribbean and after their service were then transferred into the wider wider royal navy and we know some of their careers get a bit lost so it wasn't just as clear as that and we actually do end up with some cases of um some really ethnic diversity that not to say you know it's less than one percent but it was there which i think is really nice and really interesting it goes deeper than that though in all honesty because what people aren't
1: aware of is that there are in effect, slave units within the British Army. The, some of the West India regiments were staffed by, uh, by in effect, slaves, by by black soldiers, soldiers who were brought in on the slave ships. And Marcus is cringing here because he's wondering if I'm going to, to cover it properly. And yes, I am. Because so, <laughs> yes. they weren't slaves. <laughs> That's well, they're, they're slaves up until the point where they're forcibly enlisted, which is yes. what I'm getting at. So <laughs> the slave ships come in. And we talked about recruiting sergeants. One of the options out in the West Indies where it was very hard to get um, hold of individuals who were hardier when it came to the climate and the disease, one of the options was to recruit directly from the slave ships. Now those slaves didn't have an option. They were slaves. And in effect, the, the individuals were told, right, you're going with this individual. The army in effect buys those men and those slaves are then freed upon the point of enlistment. They don't have a choice in that. They are in effect drafted in as slaves. And then once you're within the system, you've got to bear in mind that you are expected to adhere
0: to the, the, ex, the, the army's laws. And the laws, which can flog you. They, they, we had something we didn't mention. The armies can brand you. Yeah. Um, often we like a tattoo type brand, but they can brand you. You know, they uh, can mark you. But yeah, the reason I was cringing was the, the use of the word slave. And yes, they were slaves up until the point of enlistment. Uh, and I yeah. think that's important. But yes, you're right to say how they were. Some of them, not all of them, there were calls for volunteers. And because they could then be freed. So it's... A double-edged sword at best uh, and I think there's a whole lot of area out there about the black soldiers that needs to have some work done. I've listened to some very interesting talks recently about the black prisoners of war that were brought over from the French regiments and we know some of the bandsmen were freed and then the French black previous slaves were then put into British bands and then worked their way in. So they had a hell of a journey um, but we don't often know what happened to them after they were in the band and what their career path was. But certainly some of them would have been in a regiment. And it's quite a strange thing. There's a, a, a boy basically known as Jimmy Durham, uh, who was adopted by the Durham Regiment in the late 1800s. And he's often thought of being the first black soldier. And that isn't the case. There were black soldiers uh, in you know, the British Army. And also, if they were living in Britain, you know, we have officially abolished slavery within the British Isles. There's no racist laws that I'm aware of preventing people of any ethnic minority joining the army. So it's equal opportunity. You're all going to go through this slightly repressive regime effectively, um, which means that it might not be as whitewashed as sometimes we look at. You will have uh, people of all sorts of different backgrounds.
1: I mean, there's one other thing that we just need to mention. We haven't got time to do this properly because it needs a whole episode in itself. But another significant um, ethnic group that was not drafted into the British Army per se during this period, but which served shoulder to shoulder with the the British is, of course, the East India Company Mm. out in India, which employed sepoys. You know, you have whole battalions of Indians serving alongside and being a, a crucial part of Britain's imperial presence if you like out in in the
0: subcontinent. Yeah and with the sepoys I mean they were um, their terms of service was for India only and that's why they kind of were justified to pay them less though I can't deny there's probably a, a racial racist element to that. However uh, actually under a vote i think internal vote some of them did volunteer to go to egypt and this is the kind of famous uh, campaign that gives the battle of alexandria where the, the Gloucesters turned around and got the back badge and we've, we're fighting against the french in the desert but with that the summer regiments of sepoys under general baird and baird for sharp uh readers will know from the the india prequels and uh, he actually goes out and leads this expedition where they march across pretty much from Eastern Egypt all the way across to Western Egypt, uh, incredible feats. And they do this by sending out like patrols days beforehand and who drop off extra supplies and they kind of spread out. So not all the men um, are drinking from one an oasis and things. It's an amazing feat, but the, the sepoys do that as well. And it does mean that the kind of the army in Egypt in 1801 is gonna have a mixture of European and Sepoy units as well. So uh, that's before we start looking at the allied units of Greece Crete, Malta, uh, and a whole uh, rainbow of nationalities, actually, which I think deserves its own regiment, uh, its own uh, episode, because they were their own regiments, in, including Corsican and French. And It's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, it's basically, you name a country in Europe, and the British actually had uh, a unit affiliated with it at some point or in some way, and men from the all different backgrounds. We certainly had Swiss men in British regiments, um, including the French. Uh, definitely include the French. And um, so that kind of brings us on to we've talked about some different uh, races in the British Army as well, uh, which uh, was you know is, is not talked about. But we talk about the aristocracy being at the top of the regiment, and we talk about the scum of the earth at the bottom. And what we don't often think about are the middle classes who kind of fall between the cracks again in history. And something that is never mentioned in sharp because it doesn't fit into Bernard Cornwell's narrative. As much as we are fans of his work, he he neglects to mention something on purpose because he wants you to think that Sharp is the odd one out. He's the only one ever who's kind of been made up from the ranks, which isn't the case, especially the rifles, actually relatively common. I think one in 10 men. But what they actually had was its own class of men to do this. So what they had was a thing called the gentleman volunteers. And these were typically younger men from um, average means who were educated enough and had a bit of refinement so they kind of were like an officer, you know, they had a bit of an accent, they had a bit of education, but they couldn't afford the full commission because you were talking hundreds of pounds then, which is equivalent to tens of thousands of pounds now. So they enlisted as a gentleman volunteer. That meant that they would serve as a soldier, dress as a soldier. I haven't yet found any uniform distinctions uh, as a reenactor. I'd quite like to, because I think it would be something to highlight, but they messed with the officers. They ate and dined and their peers were the officers, but they served during the day with a musket on their shoulder, not a sword.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the purchase system is, is the key thing here. What folks might not be aware of is that there is this system of purchase within the, within the army. You can buy your way up the ranks, all the way up to, I think it's Colonel, it's and then beyond that, it's promotion based on C. Promotion experience. only
0: after Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but
1: these, as you say, these things cost huge amounts of money. So an Enzyme C was meant to cost £450 back then. Now, in modern day money, that's somewhere in the region of twenty one grand.
0: Uh, yeah. In in today in today's money, and, which... and that's the average like price. That doesn't count yeah. for if you want to commission into the guards, which yeah. is almost double, and yeah. cavalry are almost as much, and never mind the household cavalry, um, which was like crippling amount. You can only afford that if you're the son of an aristocrat. Uh, it really is bank breaking. It's the equivalent of buying a Aston Martin Bugatti Veyron.
1: Yeah, and we've got some nice. Um well we've got a nice account one that particularly springs to mind is george hennell who is at is he at theodore rodrigo and batterhoff or is he just at batterhoff um i'd need to check that but he as you say he serves amongst the ranks um he he gets his commission after one of those two stages i think it's Baderhoff, um where he he gets his commission and you know it, it's not cheap for them they have to go out on under their own steam the army doesn't pay their fare out there. So they have to pay that voyage out there. They have to have a letter of recommendation. But then once they present that, the officer usually commanding the division will say, OK, we're going to put you in this regiment. And as you say, they, they messed with the officers, which is a quite a nice thing to actually dwell on for a moment, which is the officers mess. Because that's a really interesting environment in itself. We've talked about the expectations amongst the rank and file. But amongst the gentlemen, and that's an important thing to to bear in mind, you were meant to be a gentleman as an officer, even if you rose from the ranks. And it's it's estimated that something like 20 to 25 percent of officers weren't from the aristocracy. You were nonetheless expected to act like a gentleman. And if you went on trial, part of the charge would be that you were accused of ungentlemanly conduct in and then they'd deal with the substance of what it was that you'd done wrong. So honour and the appropriate way to carry yourself and set an example for the rank and file was absolutely vital to military culture during this period.
0: Yeah, I think the gentlemen's volunteers are not talked about enough, um, purely because statistically not many of the accounts survive uh, that we know of. It's also something that I think just, it's got its own interesting thing. I keep wanting to find a uniform distinction. I, I don't think one existed, but to think that, we often think of Sharp being the odd one out for being a man who, you know, he's promoted from the ranks. So he doesn't really belong with the officers and he doesn't really belong with the men, but he's got the privilege of a commission now. It's um, kind of protecting him a little bit. The gentlemen volunteers, yes, they're messing with the officers. So that, that mean, you know, dining. I mean, you know, not messing with them as in practical jokes. They're dining with them. They're, they're socially going to be friends with the very junior, the ensigns, the second lieutenants, depending on the regiment, the lieutenants. They're probably not going to be friends with captains. Um, So they've got a really small social circle, but during the day they're marching in the column, they're probably out on picket duty. They're doing these kind of tasks that are expected of a soldier, which puts them in a really strange position. They don't have the protection of a rank ever. And they have the kind of the the job, the role, the horrors of fighting on the the front line with a musket. So I think, yeah, they deserve a little bit of highlighting and recognition because um, we try to, well, certain authors try to downplay that they almost didn't exist because it destroys the narrative of the few that made it through but they were there and like you say they are kind of waiting that when an officer dies his position can be sold at a lower price effectively at the demand of the colonel so they're waiting for dead man's shoes to to fill it in um other officers they're quite a mixed bag aren't they
1: yeah they really are so as we say the majority were wealthy they came from aristocratic backgrounds Uh, which was kind of essential to be able to participate in the mess culture. So there's a lot of gambling. There's a lot of drinking. Um, There is an expectation that you are able to chip into those costs. Um, And if you can't, then you're not part of the gang, as it were. And so there is that scope for you to be ostracized. And this is why Wellington doesn't actually believe that being raised from the rank works, because if you don't have that independent income, you can't. Maintain yourself in, in an, expect, to an expected standard. That therefore means you incur debts. Now, incurring a debt is an ungentlemanly conduct, even though all of them were doing it. Um, and that in turn leads to the the op- these officers who are raised from the ranks um, finding themselves in a really di- difficult situation. Uh, equally, you've got that issue of command and control, and the fact that these men know that they've come from the ranks. They know that the um the rank and file know that they've come from the ranks they might be deployed in a different unit but that doesn't matter the fact is that you know these men are going to be more advanced in age and they're going to be in the lower ranks of the army and so they're going to visibly stick out when some of the enzymes are pre-puberty you know 14 15 16 sometimes in terms of age so you you have this issue where some of them try and overcompensate for that by being overly draconian and as i said earlier you can't coerce someone into compliance. And we see this, to use a Bernard Cornwell example, in Sharp, in Sharp's Rifles, where Sharp initially gets it wrong and tries to be true, to draconian in, in the way that he handles the men, and it doesn't work. So this is one of those lovely points where Bernard Cornwall has clearly done his homework, as it were, before he sat down to write.
0: Oh, yeah. He- of certainly done his research he chooses i think on purpose to the missings out to make a lovely narrative uh certainly i think he admits that um quite recently in an interview i saw he said look i'd change history if you don't like that deal with it uh it's not meant to be factually accurate and i kind of like that deal with it um yeah but even as recent as actually a very young winston churchill he joined the army and i remember him because he joined a fashionable uh cavalry regiment he wrote home saying how much money he would need on top of his wages um, to make a living in the mess. It's not uh, that recent. The stereotype's kind of been broken. Um, and certainly uh, it's not the case anymore. And uh, friends of mine who are officers would jump up and down and say it's not, you know, anyone could be an officer. And I believe that. that is definitely the case. Um, but that kind of solidifies the purchase system, what it's all about. And I've seen it justified by, I think, two authors. And what they're saying is you actually got an investment directly into the army and directly into, therefore, kind of the system being held by the government. So you are paying well out of pocket for your position. Therefore, you believe that the system is correct and you are willing to not only basically incur yourself into debt, but to fight and die for this system that's putting you in debt. So your investment is in that and your loyalty is not only to them to be to your regiment, but to be the system. And that kind of prevents levels of reform. Remember, your parties back then are Tories and Whigs. We don't have Labour, Conservative, Liberals. Even Liberals aren't like a form thing. They're They're the Whigs. So you're kind of anti-reformist because when well, I've paid 485 pounds for my uh, ensigncy, uh, you know I'm going to have to pay 650 pounds for to be a lieutenant. Well, by the time I reach colonel, no, I want that lo- young lad to pay his way up. I don't want to have him in the system because that's what I did, and so the system repeats itself, and it kind of prevents mass reform of the army. That's not to say these officers are not professional. And again, something that slightly swept under the rug. Maybe we see it in people like Hogan and exploring officers, and in the programs, uh, people like Ross, um, Major General Ross. But there are now staff schools being set up, most notably Wickham, and they are officers are choosing to go to these places to learn to be staff officers and learn to be a trade. It's worth highlighting, I think, that uh, the Royal Engineers and Royal Artillery have always been taught uh notably at woolwich where they've learned to trade mostly mathematics and algebra and things that they need to be more scientific but now where staff college means actually they're already on their path so they're mostly doing it to reach their promotion eligible for major and this starts to professionalize the army and there's actually a little divide in the army about what's the best system and eventually the staff college system works and wins
1: yeah, I mean, Sandhurst is set up in what 1812, I think it is. Yeah, it's um, one of the later ones
0: compared to yeah. places like Woolwich.
1: Um, and it's worth saying though that this this period that we're looking at is a real transformative period in that process because early on, this isn't a professionalised officer corps. When the British Army goes out to carry out the Flanders campaign in the mid 70 early to mid 1790s, the Commander in Chief, the Duke of York finds that he's got huge problems because the officer corps is is not staffed by a professional body of officers. You've got the purchase system being abused to the extent where people are, uh, fathers are buying their baby sons commissions into the army so that they serve the relevant periods of time whilst they're still growing up, and then they're therefore able to go for a colonelcy by the time they're sort of 22 and then they've they've got access to the higher ranks and with that in time comes
0: the potential for political now that office. is technically illegal and against the system but is very easily done as agents effectively like travel equivalent to travel agents who are set up in london and they will um work the system for you for a fee and you can trade in your commission through them and they will find a buyer so you don't have to uh, it's kind of how it works it's like a pawnbroker i guess but Yes, there are systems where people are buying a commission for their their son in school and they then can then reach the army uh, with the next rank. That's not to say they're not ways and means of it working. Wellington starts to voice real big concerns about this system and why it's not fair and why it needs reform. However, he's a product of that system massively. And everyone listening who's heard any of the other ones knows Uh, I'm a huge fan of the man. You know, you think he's one of the greatest generals who ever lived, maybe one of the greatest men who ever lived. But he's a product of a system that kind of, that he's being uh, critical of. That's slight hypocrisy, maybe. Uh, He certainly purchases his way in. In fact, his brother purchased his way and I believe his aunts then pay for his uh, next promotion. And one of the reasons that he actually transfers so many times is he wants to avoid a regiment that's going to the West Indies. Uh, because as a junior officer that's thought of as being a death sentence and then if you transfer into the right positions he then ends up being an aide-de-camp to uh, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland so the chances then of promotion are higher and it's a nice job and he's near home and family and then he actually wants to transfer to a regiment that's going to go overseas he doesn't get it and I think he joins regiments like the 41st and he joins the cavalry regiment and he never even turns up he's just on the books for a couple of months and then he gets the a seniority that he needs to then go into another regiment, but that's not to say it doesn't really work. So his first kind of real working role is he goes captain, then he suddenly appears as a lieutenant colonel on most of our stories. Uh, is Wellington himself, which I think kind of rounds off the the officers for our our part today.
1: Yeah, it does. I mean, the only other thing I would say is that the system changes because of York's experience, and he uses his position as commander-in-chief of the army to start to wiggle out the useless officers who aren't doing their jobs, who are absentee officers and who equally are abusing this purchase system. And so, you know, there are stipulations on you must be a lieutenant for a certain period of time. You can't hold a commission under a certain age, and so on and so forth.
0: That's the the Duke of York, which is the the king's like younger son isn't he He's yeah. actually quite implemental uh, of all of that we, he doesn't get shouted about too often um we, we actually see him in sharp's regiment he has a joke with julian fellows uh, but i don't think he has any lines um yeah he he's a really interesting kind of reformer and sometimes you need Bureaucrats and reformers um, to take the army forward and professionalize, and you do end up in the late 1800s this kind of dual system where there's purchasing still potential, and then there's proper um, officer academies as well, like Sandhurst. So there's a real duality to the army. So I think that kind of summarizes our our days. The army is clear cut as we thought. Is everyone joining going to be the scum of the earth and then just wanting to rob? No. Is everybody going to be um, a 17 year old white um, You know, boy from London? No, they could be mixed race. They could be from um, different backgrounds. They could be a gentleman volunteer. Are the officers all aristocrats? No, but the system is against them. So they need money or an opportunity to get them there. And that really encapsulates um, what the army is about. But do not forget that actually so many of them are going through a shared experience on campaign. Yes, officers in theory have messes and tents and that opportunity but there's chances are they're going to be losing the mess. They're going way forward when they're actually going to have junior officers overseeing things like picket duties that we mentioned and sharing the sleep deprivation of those men and the long marches. If they don't have a horse or their horses basically die uh, next to them on long campaign or or even in battle. And so they are going through these things of having to walk the dozens of miles each day under the blistering sun. And that's quite a forming uh experience we do see it in first-hand accounts where officers and i think one of the best ones is like Reifman harris he doesn't write his accounts he, he is illiterate but one of his officers sees him later on and he helps him by writing his accounts therefore raise money and we see quite a few men who've basically um run out of money people famously like Reifman plunkett who does the famous shot at Corona, uh, who are so down and out of their luck, you know, maybe they've turned to drink or they just never had an opportunity out of the army. that They don't have much of a chance. They've got a tiny pension, much less than they deserve. And they might spot an old officer comrade and actually be invited to go and dine with the mayor or uh, have an opportunity to petition the current colonel and be put into one of the veteran or invalid battalions. And this happens a few times that the the men and the officers have a distant but mutual respect for each other.
1: Yeah, it's by no means a perfect system, but it's a system that works well enough to function and and ultimately to defeat the, the French comprehensively. Yes, with the help of Spanish and Portuguese allies, but the British system, this old kind of odd mishmash of, of some pretty arcane principles, ultimately is able to triumph over a more egalitarian French system, which is based on promotion by competence um, it's it's an odd
0: paradox of the the napoleonic wars but it's part of what's so interesting so next month we're going to take it back to the real core of sharpshooters and we're going to actually look at the 95th rifles themselves are they the go-getting long-range Peninsular war fighting regiment that bernard cornwell makes out no. are they all crack shots are they uh, the scum of the earth like everybody else? Yes. And are Zach and I going to finally have a bit of a falling out? Uh, tune in next month to Sharpshooters to find out and uh, see you there.
1: In the meantime, stay sharp. Stay sharp. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?